Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting December 31st, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk first about the Manhattan Project and later about the opera Dr. Atomic, which portrays the efforts and anxieties of the scientists at Los Alamos, especially Robert Oppenheimer. The opera ran in New York back in October and November, accompanied by numerous events in the city related to the Manhattan Project. I went to a gathering of surviving project scientists at New York University back on October 17th. They shared some of their memories of the project and its aftermath, and we'll hear some highlights from that session. First, Harold Agnew, who was a young physicist during the war and went on to become director of the Los Alamos National Laboratory from 1970 to 1979. Here he talks about Enrico Fermi and then Leo Szilard. You hear a lot about Oppenheimer. Uh, you hear some about General Groves. You don't hear as much publicly about Fermi. But to me, the real brains, the scientific brains, uh, was Fermi. Uh, and in a way, we owe it all to Sweden. Now, if you look at the uh, literature or the letters in Colombia between uh, Pegram, who was the dean, and Fermi, you see that Fermi had visited the United States. He'd lectured at Michigan and at Columbia in the late 30s. But he was never allowed to bring his wife, Laura, with him. Mussolini did not allow him to leave Italy with the family. Uh, if you look at this correspondence, it's very interesting because he's obviously trying to leave the country and join the faculty at Columbia. And in one of his letters, the earliest letters, he tells Pegram, in correspondence to him, do not send it to him. Send it to third parties. And he listed people that he wanted Pegram to send the letters to with regard to his potential for joining the faculty at Columbia. And then a wonderful thing happened. In 1938, he was awarded the Nobel Prize. This presented a problem for the Italian government because Fermi wouldn't go to accept it unless he took his wife and his family. So they got their suitcases together to go pick up the prize. They picked up the prize and kept on going and came to the United States. So you can say, in a way, if it wasn't for the Swedes and the Nobel Prize, we may not have gotten Fermi. And it was Fermi's idea of doing the pile, uh, which, of course, was the way we got plutonium, and it's most amazing that we went critical in, uh, it was like December of 1942, I think it was the 7th. Uh, and two years later, we were getting plutonium at Los, at Los Alamos to build a bomb. Most amazing. And, of course, that reactor there was uh, made with unenriched uranium. So you don't need enriched uranium to have a... Uh, nuclear reactor and to make plutonium. But Fermi clearly, he was, he was known as the Pope and infallible, no question about it. He also pointed out uh, at Los Alamos where it was uh, originally planned that this was going to be easy. We were going to use a gun uh, to assemble the uh, uranium and then when we got plutonium we were going to use a gun. Fermi pointed out that the plutonium we were going to get from the reactors might be different, 
It might have a high neutron background, and if that was so, you could not use it in a gun. That was Fermi, and that's what led to the implosion. Now, all this time, Fermi was an illegal enemy alien, so he couldn't be in charge of anything. He also, I found it very interesting, I think of all the people in the project, he was the only one that Groves insisted that he have a bodyguard. And he had a bodyguard all the time. And he went under the name of Henry Farmer. So he was really considered as a, a very valuable part of the project by Groves, who was a very smart person. Uh, and Fermi was called a supervisor uh, or a counselor, but he was really in charge. There was no question that what transpired there as far as the nuclear part, Fermi was was in charge. Uh, the man in the trench coat, who I think Colombo took after, was Zillard. Zillard was really, I never saw Zillard do any work. I never saw him not wear that coat. <coughs> Zillard was there one evening and he announced that he was uh, going to get his fingers pinched back from the United States government. This is after the war. And people said, you know, students sitting around, why? He said, well, he might want to become a criminal, and he didn't wish to be handicapped. <laughs> he did another thing. When we first went back to Chicago, Fermi gave lectures twice a week in the evenings, and we had to sign a, an attendance sheet that we had heard the lecture. Uh, Zillard refused, but he wanted to hear the lecture. So what he would do is sit out in the hall with the do door open. It's a really unusual person. <laughs> but, of course, it was Zillard and Teller, who, or Wigner, who went up to uh, Princeton to get Einstein to sign the letter which went to the president and got the project started. For more on Fermi and Zillard, check out the April 5th, 2006 podcast for a brief chat with Bill Lanouette, who wrote an article for Siam in 2000 on Fermi and Zillard called The Odd Couple and the Bomb. The episode is archived at siam.com slash podcast. Last week we mentioned Louis Alvarez as one of the co-founders of the asteroid impact theory of dinosaur extinction. Alvarez was a physicist with the Manhattan Project. Here's a quick story from Agnew. Uh, people may not realize it, but if it wasn't for Louis Alvarez, the Berlin airlift wouldn't have been possible. When he was at the radiation lab, he conceived the idea and actually brought into being something called GCA, Ground Control Approach. And that enabled the people in the Berlin airlift to come and land independent of the weather. Without that, they couldn't have kept that up, and that was something that Louis invented. Now a few of the other Manhattan Project physicists, Murray Peshkin, Leonard Jossum, Roy Glauber, Al Bartlett, and Hans Courant. I'm Murray Peshkin. Uh, I was among the very youngest people on the technical staff at Los Alamos, and as you can imagine, consequently, the least amongst the very least significant. I was an undergraduate student. I'd had about two and a half years in college, which was not great preparation for doing profound physics. Uh, so instead of telling you about, which, about what I did, I'd like to mention a couple of experiences that 
speak to the spirit of how things were at the time. When the war ended, the small group to which, in which I was working that was led by Dick Feynman evaporated. I was the only one left. I was still in the army at the time. So uh, I joined a group led by Philip Morrison, which was doing two things. Uh, we were building a novel kind of reactor. Also, part of the group were doing what were called critical experiments. These were experiments in which you brought together some masses of uranium or plutonium and measured how many neutrons came out as a function of the distance between the parts. And it was a way of getting information about the basic processes that were going on, the neutron reactions with the plutonium and other things. They were very dangerous experiments because the, the uh, masses of fissile material that they assembled was very close to critical. The hand, the burned hand that you saw depicted a few minutes ago was the hand of Louis Sloton, who was leading one of those experiments. At that time, we had informal safety rules. When you were bringing the two pieces of plutonium together slowly and seeing how the rate at which the neutrons that came out increased, there was an obvious safety rule. You should not lower a piece of plutonium toward the rest. You should raise it from the bottom. The reason is perfectly clear. If you are lowering it and you dropped it, you are in line for a disaster. Well, that's exactly what happened. He dropped it. There was an invisible, inaudible explosion of neutrons, but everybody knew. A few people thought that they thought that they saw a blue haze. It wasn't clear. It was almost a non-event. Uh, Louis threw the piece of plutonium which he was lowering away, but of course it was too late. Everybody raced out of the room, although nothing that happened, except the military guard who was standing near the door. He was the last man out because he didn't know anything had happened. Well, a few days later, Louis died. My own connection with it was that not so interesting. I was amongst the first people into the lab afterward to clean it up. The reason I bring it up is what it tells you about the spirit of the time. Why were they doing that insanely dangerous experiment? What was the hurry? The war was over. It could have been done more safely if it had been done in a more leisurely way. Well, my own answer after thinking about that for many years is that it was inevitable given the culture of the time and the place. There was a war. We all worked as hard as we could. People took terrible risks. Um, when the war was over, well, that was the way we were working, so we kept on doing that. I'm Leonard Jossum. 
Uh, I'm an emeritus professor of physics at Ohio State University. Um, I graduated in physics from City College in 1938. I went from there to graduate work at Cornell. Um, I went out to Los Alamos uh, and initially was in the P division working on electronic instrumentation. And after Trinity switched over to doing measurements uh, which were to become useful in the work on the super. Although people worked 24-7 on getting the bomb ready to go, um, there were other things going on as well. One I would like to mention is what happened after the war in the formation of the, alas, the Association of Los Alamos Scientists, where people in the group were concerned with questions of what do we do now, how is this to be controlled. And there were similar organizations that were in the other uh, places in the Manhattan Project in Chicago and Oak Ridge in particular. Um, the question of whether the bomb should have been dropped was a very, very uh, important part of that. And trying to in some way educate the public as to what was involved became a very important thing for those of us who were concerned with it to put our efforts into. Um, one of the things that uh, I might mention was that uh, as part of that process we took samples of Trinitite, diffused sand from the Trinity explosion, uh, embedded them in clear plastic and sent those samples to the mayors of the, 20, of the 42 largest cities in the country with a cover letter uh, saying, <coughs> if things are not put under control, you could have this in your city. It apparently didn't have the effect we wanted it to have, but it was part, a little known part, of the effort that the people who worked at Los Alamos put in to trying to get uh, rational uh, decisions made about where we go from here. I'm... Roy Glauber, I uh, am still teaching at Harvard, and uh, well, I, I think you can see any time you look back 65 years, uh, the people who can recollect it have, uh, have to have a certain maturity, uh, and uh, the people who are who are in fact still here, were mostly pretty young at the time. Uh, I was 18 myself when I 
went to Los Alamos, <coughs> at least first arranged to go there in, in uh, 1943. And uh, one of the things that immediately struck you about the place, there are many remarkable things about the place, but one was an almost total absence of gray hair. Uh, there, uh, well, Oppenheimer was one of the grand old men of the place at age 38. There were only a couple of people very much older. Uh, the scientists were, for the most part, uh, in their 20s and early 30s. Uh, <clears throat> and they were a pretty spirited lot. Uh, uh, they were also the people who had not yet been tapped for war work, which uh, had been organized quite extensively already in other laboratory centers. Um, but they were also very highly motivated people. And uh, I would say that we, all of us, shared a considerable fear of Germany uh, and were aware that if the Germans, by any chance, managed to have any success in building such a weapon, that they would not be very sentimental about using it. And that, indeed, was the indication you remember later, after the Battle of Britain, in their use of the V1 and V2 weapons. Uh, so we had then very much in mind, all of us. The one thing I would add is that there was no one I recall saying a word about Japan. We did not consider them a threat, and we none of us thought of using the weapon on Japan as an immediate matter. In fact, when the war in Europe ended uh, in early 1945 as it ground down, we continued with full momentum, and it was momentum conveying us. There was, I think, scarcely one person uh, who left the project. Now, we, as young intellectuals, almost all of us, thought a great deal about the intention of the project. Uh, not too many people went there with any awareness of, of what it was intending to do. Um, we wanted many of us to discuss the intentions for the use of the weapon. <clears throat> there was no forum devoted to that whatsoever. Uh, there was a good deal of discussion between individuals, and, and heaven knows probably quite a few discussions uh, in living rooms, but there was no organization of discussion at all. Now, of course, we were living on a military base, and uh, nothing was quite so evident as, as military security, uh, except that it generally tended to behave in a fairly rational and, and, and even benign way. All our mail, of course, was censored, and we were not supposed to travel out of a rather restricted radius of about 75 miles, and most of us couldn't anyway because we had no means of locomotion. Um, but we did want to discuss the matter, and uh, itching to do that for some time decided, I think 20 or 30 of us, to hold a meeting, which we did hold within a secure area in the technical area at 8 
uh, in the evening in about the first week of December. But now if you put all these uh, intellectual academics in one room, what is the first thing that they'll discuss? It's really, shall we have discussions? Uh, Do we have any right to do this? And there was considerable worry about that, quite a bit of discussion of that very issue, and a decision to send an emissary to the one person we respected, knowing knowing that if we went directly to the security people, uh, the answer would be no. Uh, We charged Robert Wilson, who I gather is in the opera, with going off and talking to Oppie. They went out riding together in in those days. Uh, We didn't get an answer back from Wilson for almost a month. Uh, Remember, by that time, we're talking about January of 1945. Uh, The answer was uh, Oppie rather thought the general might take a dim view of our discussing any such questions. Uh, but uh, perhaps this was a poor time to do it, and perhaps a better time would be closer to the Trinity test, which, of course, was being prepared uh, with full speed at that time. Um, that seemed to me a rather disingenuous answer and, and uh, to many people. There's little doubt of what General Groves really thought about this, and I'd have to say that partly at least on this account, the Los Alamos scientists were intimidated, felt intimidated, and uh, in fact the people in Chicago who felt much less intimidation of that sort, they were not living on a military base, uh, and they may have been wondering what to do with themselves anyway (laughs) at that point. They went off and began uh, speaking to the world at large, immediately after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki explosions. I'm Al Bartlett. I went to Los Alamos in the middle of July of 1944. This was about the time that it was found that the isotope plutonium-240 had a very high spontaneous fission rate, and there was a great urgency to have a mass spectrometer set up to measure the amount of 240 that was in the plutonium that was coming down from Hanford. Uh, I was assigned to work with Bob Thompson and with Donald Swinehart, and the three of us set up a mass spectrometer and made these measurements, and it was a wonderful experience for me. I had just graduated from Colgate University with a bachelor's degree, and so I really got my hands into the experimental physics. Uh, Werner Heisenberg has been mentioned. He was the head of the German effort, whatever there was, and as we all had the highest respect for the scientific ability of the the German scientists, we were were genuinely concerned, as Professor Glauber has said. Uh, There was a public address system throughout the entire laboratory And if I couldn't reach John Smith at his phone extension, I could call the telephone operator, and she would come over on the intercom and to the whole lab and say, well, John Smith, please call extension so-and-so. And two or three times, you would hear the operator come on uh, two or three different times with a message, 
Will Werner Heisenberg please report to the director's office? <laughs> I lived in a dormitory that was at the north end of the complex, and these dormitories were several of them were made there with the same architectural pattern, very quickly put up. And uh, uh, room 40 in our dorm was Harry Dalian, who had been mentioned earlier. Harry worked out at, I think it was the Omega site, where they did these near-criticality experiments, and I was interested, and uh, I asked him, you know, I'd love to see this and see what's going on. He took me out there one night and showed me these experiments, and one of them they would have on a wooden table, uh, small cubes like one centimeter on an edge of enriched uranium, in the center of a, an assembly of these cubes would be a neutron source, and you would hear from a loudspeaker clicks as neutrons were registered in some neutron detectors. And as you brought more cubes in, making an approximate sphere, uh, the counting rate would go up. And with just a fixed uh, arrangement, you could come up and bring your hand up, and the neutron scattered off the hydrogen in your hand, you'd hear the counting rate go up. So it was a very interesting thing for me to be able to tour this site. Sometime later, uh, over lunch in the mess hall, uh, somebody said, well, Harry's had an accident. And uh, I, he was in the hospital. And a day or two later, I went to visit him in the hospital. And he was quite lucid. He, his right hand was bandaged and very, very bulky with heavy bandages. And he told me that, as has been recounted already here, that he brought in a cube instead of bringing it up from the bottom so that if you sensed anything was wrong, your act of dropping it and sort of getting the hell out of there would reduce the criticality. He brought it in from the top and it dropped. He told me that it was glowing blue around this whole assembly. He reached his right hand in and knocked it apart and that stopped the reaction. And at the time... Uh, that I talked to him, he thought he might lose some fingers on his right hand, but he lived, I think, about three weeks. Uh, that was room 40 in our dorm. In room 39, uh, for a brief period, Louis Sloten lived, and uh, I talked to him a few times. He had been a volunteer in the Spanish Civil War fighting on the Republican side against General Franco, and uh, he was a very good physicist, when we were in the Pacific on our way to the test at Bikini, we heard over the radio that he, too, had had a criticality accident, and he died just a few weeks later. I am Hans Courant. I witnessed the Trinity test at 5.30 on the cold and clammy morning, and I was at south 10,000 yards from ground zero when the countdown came to an end. This was an awesome experience for me. Awesome, you know, means fear and dread and terror. Nowadays, it may have changed its meaning. It was awesome on several levels. First, so bright, so enormous, so silent. Second, it was so devastating. It was so successful. Third, it was so deadly. The concept that next time there would be people in the blast, 
suddenly struck home to me. It was terrifying. The uh, Trinity test had been intended as an exercise to obtain uh, technical data and might well have been postponed a few days due to the extremely miserable weather. But the yes or no decision on the bomb was much more important and was the one piece of information that people really needed. Because at that time, in Potsdam, there was a meeting between Truman, Churchill, and Stalin, and they were discussing the ending of the war. And this was an important piece of data for them. The, uh, well, the... Uh, the test took place in a short respite of really miserable weather, stormy, wet weather, and uh, the ground at South 10,000 was wet and soggy, and our pressure measurements, which I had undertaken to to uh, prepare, uh, did not work in the uh, in the wetness of the uh, general circumstances. Um, we, uh, the group of observers at South 10,000 were equipped with welder's glasses that uh, would permit the direct observation of the bomb. I mounted mine over a hole in a cardboard shield, as did almost all the other people there. Well, the uh, uh, rainy conditions may have compromised the official measurements. However, it did not prevent Fermi and Morrison and our group to make some measurements on this spot. Uh, Morrison arranged some stakes on the ground to measure the size of the fireball when it uh, became, uh, 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 when the explosion, the explosive energy uh, had stopped and when the expansion of the fireball was just uh, uh, due to the uh, sound pressure. And Fermi had devised a simple, a simple measurement, which you all have heard about, of dropping a stream of little pieces of paper to measure the displacement of the air at South 10,000 as a result of the bomb going off. The, the weather was very quiet at that moment, and uh, he and Phil Morrison both came up with a, with a uh, number uh, immediately uh, on that morning. Hans Garant mentioned the late Phil Morrison. He later became the book reviewer for Scientific American. Roy Glauber, who you heard speak, went on to win the Nobel Prize in Physics for his contributions to the quantum theory of optical coherence. Last week I mentioned that the nationwide broadcast of the Metropolitan Opera's production of Dr. Atomic was airing on December 29th. Here's a brief clip with Gerald Finley as Oppenheimer. Benjamin Peterson is Emeritus Professor of Physics at NYU. 
He'll take us from the Manhattan Project itself to a discussion of the opera, Dr. Atomic. Uh, I was uh, at Los Alamos, and I also went to Tinian. My particular job was to uh, uh, design, help design, and uh, to then test the electric switches that we used in connection with the implosive lenses. But that's not what I want to, I'm going to talk about. I decided that you're going to hear more than you probably want to know about what, what we all did at Los Alamos and, and other, and other Manhattan Project groups. I happened to have seen the, uh, opera, Dr. Atomic, uh, in, in dress rehearsal last week. And I wanted to give some of my impressions of, of, uh, what I thought of it. It brought me back to the, the time several years ago when Brian Schwartz actually, as, as he said, organized a symposium in connection with the play Copenhagen by Michael Frayn. Uh, there was this, this wonderful symposium and, uh, in which people gave opinions. But, uh, the per, the, the, the point of the, of the play was something that, something about Heisenberg's, uh, ambivalence about working on the bomb. And finally, one got the impression from the play that Heisenberg w was, if, if certainly not an active, um, saboteur of, of the German research, but n didn't really work very hard on it and, and, uh, felt that, that he was morally justified in, in helping stall the development of the atomic bomb. Uh, now, my first reaction after I, after I saw the play was I was, I didn't think, I didn't think it was fair. It didn't represent what I thought was the truth. I, but I thought about it a long time. I finally decided that it was a play. It was art. And I was thinking of reality. And reality and art are not the same thing. Uh, who knows what, what's going to survive? Uh, probably in, in uh, centuries to come, no one will remember w what Heisenberg actually did. But the play, which is a very fine play, may actually survive. And then nobody will, will, will know what I thought was the truth, but they will know what really was art. <laughs> and then, then I saw this wonderful opera, Dr. Atomic. It was truly a, a marvelous op opera. However, I have to point out that having seen an opera one time, it, you cannot really judge whether it's going to last in, into, the, into the, uh, the repertoire. It takes a long time for an opera to sink in, and it, it is not a simple opera. It's a complex opera. The music, there's no hummable tunes in the, mu in the, in the opera. Uh, so... So you you have to let it sink in. Truth and reality, truth and art, also clash, in my opinion, in in the opera. Maybe not very dramatically, but there's but Oppenheimer uh, showed his multi multifaceted polymath personality, his his uh, obsession with Eastern philosophy, uh, his self doubts. His famous quote about physicists have known sin. I have to say that, uh, as, as Dr. Agnew said, the, 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 the people who were in the war 
and, and there were millions of soldiers in the war, when the atomic bomb was dropped, there was universal joy. The, the millions of soldiers, many of whom were destined to invade Japan, uh, felt as though they had been released from a, from a, a, a sword that was hanging over their, over their heads. Uh, Am I finished? Okay. Um, <laughs> so, I, all I then them to complete, to com, complete, con, conclude, it turns out that the opera is art. It's not true in the sense of, of, of reality, but a uh, hundred years from now, nobody will know uh, that Oppenheimer had no doubts whatever about what he was doing then or later, as far as I know. But, but his, the, the depth of his, of his soul uh, can, reveals itself in the, in the opera as a piece of beautiful art. Patricia Steiner is a mezzo-soprano with the Metropolitan Opera Chorus and performed in Dr. Atomic. She's also an old friend of mine, so I called her to get some inside info. Hey, Pat, how you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. So uh, anybody who saw Dr. Atomic on PBS can't miss you because when the show opens, you're, you're right up front in the middle of the stage. Yes, I am. Yeah. I'm a, a military, uh, actually a, a guard. Anybody who's looking for Patricia Steiner, she's the tall woman in uniform uh at the leftmost part of the group on stage right <laughs> at the top of the show. So what was it like to be in this work, which is very different? I mean, this is not the magic flute. No, it's a fabulous piece. It's so different from what we usually do because it's a little atonal. It's very difficult rhythmically, and uh, it's about something that we're all moderately familiar about but we were so interested in let's talk about the music a little bit because i found the music to kind of be anxiety inducing and, <laughs> and i i think it was meant to do that yes i can't tell you how many of my friends who saw the opera thought, thought the same thing i think that the composer did that for the reason that the people that were doing the Manhattan Project, they were so intense about getting this done because of what was happening at the time. Plus, they knew that this was had never been done before. It was like a first. It was a huge boon for them. That would be something that they would go down in history for. Well, let's talk about the atonal nature of the music, which uh -huh. which I found to be kind of midway between like real atonal stuff and sort of Sondheim-y in, in a little bit. Yeah, Sondheim is a very good way of uh, of saying it. Um, it's not truly a atonal. Um, it, it's what we would consider now moderately like a modern tonality. We're used to hearing um, minor seconds and, and sevenths and we're you it's jazz uses that kind of thing all the time mm -hmm. so it's something we're used to using the the difference is it it doesn't take a doesn't use really melody in there it goes along with what the composer felt like was a feeling and takes this you know uses these very close uh closely knit chords for for this Anxiety, like you said, this anxiety-provoking thing, and then it will calm it down a little bit, but it'll come right back. Yeah, the uh, there are good examples in in uh, Oppenheimer's 
Ari is. And, and by the way, I would like to just uh, say how much I appreciate an opera in which the lead male is a baritone instead of a tenor. <laughs> <laughs> It's, that's that's nice. true. It doesn't happen that often, does right. it? It's nice to hear for a change. <laughs> yeah, the, the Oppenheimer arias and a lot of Edward Teller's stuff has this kind of, that kind of, um, that moderate atonality that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It, it, and it's really interesting because it, it, you know, if, if you're, if you, if you're going out, if you want to see Oklahoma, this ain't for you. No. But it, it really kind of, grabs you and draws you into this to this uh scene that this this historic moment right and the problems that they were suffering i mean they were so worried it was going to rain they were so worried it was going to blow up the wrong way they were so worried it wouldn't blow up at all and and when you think about it i mean did, did this occur to you guys when you're when you're you know in your rehearsals and and sitting around talking about the show how this moment in history is really so suitable for an opera because it's almost you know Wagnerian in it in in this intent these people are 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 trying to work together to create this doomsday weapon it it it's almost like a fictional story it is it's actually a perfect opera story because the drama in it and and going toward this incredible moment in time and then the ramifications of what it what it means at the very end is it, that's what opera's all about where where you're kind of at the end you can't believe this happened i mean it's like the finally the tenor gets this says he loves the soprano and then she dies. It's like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that same feeling. Right. Like, like all the great operas where everybody's dead at the end. Yeah. Right. Except for this, this particular case that happened to be millions. Well, not millions, but tens of thousands. Tens of yeah. thousands. Yeah. yeah. Well, Pat, it was great to talk to you and, uh, and thanks very much. And do you know if there are any plans to do it again? I bet you that we'll be doing that again because it was quite popular probably won't be next year i i don't think it's on the schedule but i bet you we'll see it in the next couple of years if you didn't catch dr atomic when it aired on pbs look for it to be rerun or to become available on dvd soon also just google dr atomic spell out the word doctor to get to the med opera's website featuring clips from the show interviews with the creators of the opera and lots more a dvd on the making of the opera is coming out in february and on January 26th, PBS is running a program called The Trials of J. Robert Oppenheimer with the great actor David Strathairn in the lead. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. In these tough economic times, some divorcing couples are now fighting over who has to keep the house. Story two. It is now legal in California to use human fat collected during liposuction as biofuel to run vehicles. Story three. The head is not a uniquely high source of heat loss despite oft-repeated claims that we lose 40% of our body heat through the head. And story four, CIA operatives in Afghanistan are apparently supplying local leaders with Viagra in exchange for information. 
Time's up. Story one is true. Divorcing couples are now fighting over who has to keep the economic burden of the house. One in six homes is now worth less than the mortgage being paid on it. On December 29th, the New York Times quoted Gary Nicholson, president of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, as saying, We used to fight about who gets to keep the house. Now we fight about who gets stuck with the dead cow. Story four is true. There are reliable reports that the CIA is basically bribing Afghans with uh, Viagra for intel. For more, check out the December 29th 60-second science blog item by Coco Ballantyne at Siam.com. The article quotes a urologist who warns about the potential dangers of using Viagra without a proper medical history, but he also says, I'm glad they're making love, not war. And story three is true. We've been told to wear hats because you lose so much heat from your head in cold weather. The British Medical Journal says that the 40% figure probably originated with an old military study in which subjects in Arctic survival gear, but no hats, were put in extreme cold because their heads were uncovered. That was where the heat escaped from. But a 2006 study in the Journal of Applied Physiology found that there's nothing special about your head. And I mean that. And the BMJ notes that if you really lost 40% of your body heat from your head, it would be the equivalent of being out in the cold without pants on, which is probably somehow related to stories one and four. All of which means that story two about human fat harvested with liposuction being a legal source of biofuel in California is totally bogus because what is true is that a Beverly Hills liposuction doc claimed that he was running his car and his patient's fat, but he skipped to South America to avoid prosecution for a bunch of other shady stuff before he could substantiate his claim. For more, check out our December 29th blog item by Larry Greenmeyer. Although it is theoretically possible... To produce biodiesel from human fat, it is still illegal to put medical waste in your gas tank. But it would make an interesting plotline for a sequel to Soylent Green. Unleaded 87 is people! Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out Siam.com for the latest science news and artist Michael Oliveri's images of the nanoscale world. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.